disruptive. And, and, and hopefully we'll get to the end of the night and we'll love the Bible more than ever, ever, ever before. And more than anything, I'm hoping to give you some, some, um, some food for thought on how to handle it when your kids ask you questions about the Bible. You have no idea. You're, you're just trying to pretend like, okay, I don't have those doubts too. Like, it's, like let's, let's talk about this instead of, uh, instead of shutting it out. So if you could bring that first slide up, just a couple of affirmations uh, to start with. One, that the Bible's fully inspired. I think that, you believe that, Shane Willard believes that, Bay City believes that. This is how rumors get started. So let's get the affirmations out there, okay? That the Bible's fully inspired. And, and I'll even go so far as to say this, because this is really important to some people, that, that the Bible's inerrant. As long as it's properly interpreted within the genre it was written in, you, 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 you can't improperly interpret something and then expect it for it to hold to this sort of perfect, inerrant sort of thing. The Bible is, is lots of different books written in lots of different genres. Let, let me just say it as simply as this. What the original author intended to say to the original audience at the original time in the original genre it was written in is very, very important to interpreting what's going on there. And so, so the Bible's fully inspired, but let's talk about inspiration for a second. And let's talk about what inspiration is and what inspiration is not. Next slide. So the word inspire comes from the Latin word spire, which means to breathe. So all forms of this word... Um, mean to breathe. So respiration, in and out. It, medically, if something falls in my lungs and, and a medical professional says, he's aspirating, that means he cannot breathe because there's an object in the way. Um, so, so to inspire means to breathe into something. To expire means to pull breath out of something. In, in the ancient world, they didn't say people died. They said they expired. Like, it was so primitive, it was like, oh, look, that guy breathed out and didn't breathe in again. Isn't that something else? He lost his breath, right? That's expiration. So, when the scripture says that the Bible's inspired, right? So, when the scripture says the Bible's inspired, th there's only one time it ever says that. Now, it's written by a guy named Paul, and he says, all scripture is inspired. All scripture is inspired. And so, of course, when he wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament, so you say, all scripture is inspired. Now, so there's one time that a guy says the scripture is inspired. So, so let's, but let's, let's make a case that Jesus would have believed the scriptures were inspired. All right? So, so, so the two guys with the highest view of scripture in the scriptures is Jesus and Paul. And that makes sense because they were both rabbis. It makes sense that they would have both been the ones that memorized the whole thing. It, that, that makes perfect sense. But the two guys that believed it was the most inspired also thought it was the most progressive. They also thought it was the least static. Like they both would have got an F in Bible, right? Like the, the Bible clearly says to stone adulterers. Would Jesus stone an adulterer? No, Jesus found another way around that. The Bible clearly says you got to circumcise. Paul says don't worry about it. The Bible clearly says don't eat bacon. Paul says if you're eating it for the Lord, whatever. The Bible clearly says that, 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 that you have to have one holy day a week. Paul says every day should be a holy day. These guys, so the ones who had the highest view of scriptures were the ones who were interpreting them the least statically. If you want to ruin the Bible, Speak about it in static terms. You'll ruin it. It's not intended to be static. 
And, and, and so when it says it's inspired, let's keep that word because we, we, that's that word's what it means. It's that God breathed into something a man wrote and gave it life. That's what inspiration is. So let's talk about what it's not. Inspiration is not writing it. I mean, I hear well-meaning people go, well, God wrote the Bible. That's just dumb. Like, God wrote the Bible? No. Like, how, how do you even say something like that? And which part? Love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, check. But what about Exodus 21 that says, if you need to beat a slave for laziness, that's fine, so long as it takes him longer than a day to die from the beating. But if he dies within a day, now that's murder. Did God write that one? Or what about the one in Corinthians that says women should shut their mouths in church? Did God write that one? Or what about the one in Corinthians that says all women should be wearing head coverings in church? None of you are doing that. What about that one? Or what about the one that says a shirt made of mixed cloth is an abomination unto God? What about that one? Or what about Deuteronomy 23 that says no Moabite will ever be welcomed by God? Did God write that? Considering Ruth's a Moabite, David's one-fourth Moabite, Jesus is one-twenty-eighth Moabite? I think he accepts Moabites. Or what about the six scriptures in the Old Testament that say all, all Sidonites are cursed, only to find out that Jesus, that Jesus blesses the Sidonites? And then, of course, they want to kill him for that. Like, what about that? You can't say God wrote it. Inspired does not mean God wrote something, nor does inspired mean that God dictated it. Like God's in heaven going, and Moses is like, all right, that sounds crazy, but all right, if you need to be the slave for laziness, that's okay. Because, like, come on. When we say things like God wrote the Bible, it leads to unanswerable questions like, well, if God wrote it, why did he say it was okay to be the slave? Why did he say slavery was okay? Why didn't he just skip all of that and just say, quit having slaves altogether? There's a passage in Leviticus that says, if you need to sell your daughter as a slave in order to make money for your family, here's the legal way to do that. Why not just write, stop selling your children, dude? Like, right? Like, it puts the Bible in these untenable situations. But the Bible doesn't fit those categories at all. Inspiration just simply means that man wrote something and God needed to give it life. And how does God give something life? He breathes on it. Which leads to this. What's the first thing in the Bible God breathed on? Dirt. And what happened? You and me. We are what happens when God breathes on dirt. We are inspired dirt clods. That's what we are. And as long as we breathe, we continue to be inspired dirt clods. And when we stop breathing, what do we become? Normal dirt clods, right? But as long as we're breathing... We're inspired dirt clods. And if you're inspired dirt, what does that make you? It makes you holy dirt. And if you're holy dirt, what does that make you? It makes you holy ground. So sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but we're looking too far. Paul said it this way, that you are the temple, the abiding place of the living God. Is the Bible inspired? Yes. Are you inspired? Yes. You're held together by God's breath. A later writer said it this way, let your life be the epistle for all to read. This is brilliant stuff. The Bible is just awesome. It is just awesome. So, so let's talk about it a few ways. Next slide. There's complexity in the Bible. 
So you can't, you can't say, well, well oh, the Bible's very clear. Actually, sometimes it's not. It's very complex. You, you've got 40 books. You've got 66 books written by 40 people over a thousand year period of time in multiple genres and multiple historical contexts. That's complex. Sometimes in the Bible, you find God speaking. Sometimes you, you see him saying something. But, but, then, but then, next slide, so, sometimes you find people thinking God's speaking when he isn't. And that's, that's normal. Have you ever thought God was saying something that in hindsight turns out he wasn't saying? That happens in the Bible too. There's this one place where it says, and God told David to take a census. That's in the book of Kings. God told David to take a census. But in the book of Chronicles, it's, it's talking about the same exact event. And it says Satan told David to take a census. So which one is it? Did God tell him? Or did Satan tell him? Or was it the one place that God and Satan agreed? Or what's going on there? Or how does historical art tell us what's happening there? Sometimes you see God speaking. Sometimes you see people thinking God's speaking when he's not. Let's say it another way. Sometimes people curse when God is blessing. You find this first in Genesis 9, where it says, God blessed all of Noah's sons. Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed all of Noah's sons. The word all is all it's all of them. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Verse 7, and God blessed all of them. Verse 17, and God blessed all of them. Then Genesis verse 9, Genesis 9, verse 24, Noah wakes up from a drunk, hungover stupor. And I mean, it says that he was so drunk he didn't remember getting naked. That's drunk. Look, there's levels to drunk. There's relaxed, there's buzzed. Then past that, there's drunk. Then somewhere past that, there's off your face. And then somewhere past that is, how did I get naked? Now, if you've ever been, how did I get naked, drunk, what's the next morning like? Horrendous. And remember, Noah grew up in a day where there wasn't nurofen, paracetamol, or aspirin. He just had to chew on a piece of pine bark till he felt better, Right? And he's in a drunk, irritated, hungover stupor. And what does he do? He curses the line of Ham. He curses the line of Ham, which included Canaan and included the Sidonites. And that's why those people were considered cursed. And so, so, so some people say, oh, God cursed Ham. No, he didn't. God blessed Ham. As a matter of fact, God blessed Ham three times. Noah cursed Ham. But the Bible tells the whole story. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't just put in the good parts. It also puts in the shameful parts. Why? Because everything belongs in the story and everything belongs in your story. Your successes belong in your story. Your failures belong in your story. The, the wins belong in your story. The times you've acted like an idiot, it belongs in your story. In, in a story where God's blessing him, blessing him, blessing him, it just included, the, the Bible sometimes is telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible is just accurately recording what happened. Noah's, Noah cursed this dude and it stuck. And you know what? In America... In the 1900s and 1800s, pastors used that passage to justify the mistreatment of black people. Here was the logic. If God cursed Ham and Ham ended up in Ethiopia, and there's a lot of black people in Ethiopia, therefore God cursed all black people. And if God cursed them, then who are we to bless them? That's Homer Simpson logic. And it starts with a false premise. God blessed Ham. It was Noah that cursed Ham. And white pastors in the South in America used that to justify the atrocious, 
unjust treatment of black people for years. Terrible thing. Sometimes, next slide, sometimes people act with heroic obedience. The Bible tells those stories well. David and Goliath. There's lots of really cool Gideon overcoming the Midianites. Sometimes they act with heroic obedience. But also, next slide, sometimes people act with heartbreaking disobedience. And the Bible tells those stories as well. Like I've done Q&As all over this world for people under 30. And it's about their objections to the Bible. And the amount of times I've heard, well, they'll read some crazy passage and go, why did God, why was God okay with that? And you go, where did you think God was okay with that? Well, it's in the Bible, and if it's in the Bible, God's okay with it. What? No, sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. It's, it's telling you this, this was unfortunate, but it happened. Jephthah made a vow to kill whatever came out of his house first, and it happened to be his daughter. God didn't approve of that. It just happened. Uh, next slide. So sometimes there's tragic atrocities like Sodom or Jephthah. There's the, there's the example there. Sometimes, like one of the questions I got asked at a Q&A one time was, was how can you serve, this was by an agnostic um, college student, how can you be okay serving a God who was okay with the forced homosexual rape of people? And I said, what are you talking about? They said, they read the passage. They said in Sodom they were raping people and, and God, God's okay with that. And I said, where would you get God's okay with that? Well, it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, God put a stamp on all of it, right? God wrote it, right? It's like, wait a minute, hang on. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. It's not like God was for any of that. Next slide. Sometimes you got God's behavioral plan. So God's given us a way to act. But, but even within that, sometimes that's just general observations. Like the Proverbs are, are, are general wisdom observations. I'll, I'll give you an example. You can't read Proverbs as if it's a law. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a proverb that says, if you answer your enemies softly, their wrath will turn away from you. Was that true? In general, yes. But Jesus answered his enemies softly, and last time I checked, they killed him. It's not like, I, I had a young couple tell me, this is within the last year, they said, oh, we just had a baby. I said, congratulations. We got to talking, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to raise this baby like Proverbs tells us to, so they'll turn out great. And I'm like, good luck with that, right? There's no guarantees in this world, are you kidding me? Like Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, if a fool addresses you, don't answer him back lest you lower your intelligence to his. That's Proverbs 26, verse 4. Proverbs 26, verse 5 says, If a fool addresses you, answer him back bluntly to reveal his folly. Well, what are you meant to do? Oh, so, so, next slide. Sometimes you have descriptions of events God was happy about. So something happened, and man, this is like made God's heart pump, right? Next slide. But, but sometimes you also have descriptions of events that just happened. Horrendous things. Lots of people getting killed. In the Bible. You say, why are there stories in the Bible? And, and if, you, if, you, if you act like God wrote it or God approves of all of it, sometimes we'll put ourselves in a position trying to explain why God allowed a whole group of people to be slaughtered. But, but it wasn't like God wanted that. It's, it's, it's just part of the story that explains how history Journey from here to here to here to here to here. It's part of the story. Next slide. Sometimes you find parables and fictional stories to make a moral life point or explain the meaning of event. This should be obvious. There are parts of the Bible that are fiction. And that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means the original author was telling a fictional story to make a point. This is a problem in Western world. 
The Western world hears not literal and they think not true. But that's not the case. The parable of the prodigal son didn't actually happen. It's a parable. That'd be like me taking you to Israel and you asking the history guide, can you take us to the farm where the father and the prodigal son story lived? The guy would be, what, don't be silly. And so the Bible has fictional stories in it to make a point, and that was okay. Heck, in the Old Testament, there's an entire section dedicated to poetry. Those are poems. So sometimes you find these things. And here's where it gets a bit confusing. In ancient historical genre, it was okay to put a fictional story in the middle of historical narrative if it exacerbated the meaning of the historical narrative. So, so part, of, part of the hermeneutical complexity of the Bible is understanding, wait a minute, is this a historical narrative or is this a parable or is this a poem or is this a fictional story put into the historical narrative to make a point of the historical narrative? But you've got to get to the original intent of the original author to the original audience before we start being dogmatic about it. Um, next slide. You also have references to other tribal literature. This shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us that the Bible writers were referencing other literature of the time. This shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that, that a certain percentage of Jesus' teaching was also taught by Hillel before Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't surprise us that a certain percentage of Jesus' teachings was also taught by Shammai before, before Jesus was around. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that the best way to read the Gospels is to understand how ancient Roman biographies were written about Caesars. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that the first 11 chapters of Genesis were tribal poetic retellings of ancient Babylonian stories in a way that made Jehovah seem more mighty and more loving than the ancient Babylonian gods. That shouldn't surprise us. It's all in there. And it makes it better, not worse. It makes it more beautiful, not less beautiful. There's references to all kinds of things. The book of Revelation, for instance, is one big giant reference to the reign of Domitian. And don't, don't try to read the book of Revelation and apply it all to today without understanding that John's writing a letter to seven specific churches in a tormented, oppressed part of Asia Minor that was put there by Domitian himself. And this is John writing an in-your-face confrontation to the imperial reign of Domitian. we got to understand these things before we start passing our opinion on something or writing a bunch of crappy novels about the rapture or something. Um, or, 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 or there's authentic expressions of where people were at the time it was written. Like, like I'll give you an example. If, if um, I'm going from, these are actual questions I've been asked in Q&As all over the world. Um, if, you read, if you read a poem like it's a science book, it's a real problem. And so um, if you Google, don't do it now, but if you Googled Bible errors... Um, one of the top ten that come up is, is, that, is that the Bible lies about the earth. And, um, and, so I got, and the reason I know that is because I've been in these Q&As all over the world, and they all ask the exact same questions because they all check Google. And so, and so just like any athletic coach, I check Google before I go into the Q&As so that I'm not surprised by any of their questions, which is just, it's just preparedness. It's really, really pretty cool. And, and in Psalm, I'll give you an example of this. In Psalm 104, it says, The Lord our God, He's the great creator. He put the earth in its place, and now the earth never moves. Is that true? Don't think too hard about that. Please don't check your brain at the door. Is the earth stationary? 
No, the earth's moving in every conceivable way. It's moving this way. It's moving this way. It's moving this way. But the Bible says it doesn't move. So the question is, is, well, if it's wrong about that, what else could it be wrong about? But hang on a second. That's a, that's a poem. And think about this in history. Whose life did that drastically affect? Galileo. So it's 1633, they, they thought the earth, the earth was flat and not moving, right? And Galileo said, actually, guys, uh, oh, man, we've got proof now. The earth's moving. And the church said, you'll recant that. That's heresy. He, they say, he said, what? They said, the Bible clearly says the earth doesn't move. And he said, I'm telling you, I'm trying to save you some embarrassment here. You're going to have to reinterpret that. The earth's moving. And they thought some pretty good torture techniques would get him to come off that, and he wouldn't. And then they said, they said, you'll recant that or you'll go to hell. He said, whatever, bro. I'm just telling you, the earth is moving. And so in 1633, the church put Galileo in hell. In 1992, they admitted they were wrong and let him out. That's 360 years, the poor man rotting in hell, before they realized they were wrong about the earth moving. And so they let him out of hell, which is quite comical in and of itself. Excuse me, can we have Galileo back? You know, Galileo comes up out of hell all jacked up. And he says, boy, I'm glad you figured that out. It's hot as hell down there. But, but, but does that mean, is Psalm 104 an error? Not if you read it how it was originally written. It was originally written by an ancient man as a song of praise to his creator. This guy that understands nothing about physical science is sitting on the side of a hill looking at the sky in awe of what this creator's done. And he writes a song that's inspiring. That is moving. Like that, that you don't, if uh, my, um, somebody I went to, to university with named Laura Story, she was at Columbia International University when I was there. She wrote a song you might have heard of called Indescribable. So it's indescribable, uncontainable. You put the, right, right, right. And she wrote that. Um, she was going home for the weekend and driving through the mountains in North Carolina, and it was, she was getting sleepy. And she got out of the car, and it was a scenic outlook trying to wake herself up. And the sun was just setting, you know, between the mountains. And she got a pen and paper and wrote a poem that later became that song. And what would you think about it if I said, hey, this astrophysicist called her and corrected all the physical science errors in her song? You'd be like, what are you talking about? But that's how we, that's what, that's how we treat these things. That's insane. That's insane. Let, let's say it this way. Um, uh, you see people's observations. So the Bible records people's observations. Like there is a verse in the Bible that says Jesus was full of Beelzebub. There's a verse in the Bible that says Jesus was out of his mind. There's a verse of the Bible that, 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 that said Jesus needed to be thrown off of a cliff. Is that true? Well, it's an accurate recording of what was going on. And so, so, so the Bible allows people's observations to be written down. And sometimes, uh, next one, is you have different opinions from different authors. Solomon was very for marriage. Paul was very not. He who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. What did Jesus say about marriage? And I quote, don't worry about marriage. It's not in heaven anyway. Now, if you hear that and you're thinking, oh, my God, Shane, please do that thing you do. 
but that's got to mean something else. I'd love to see my schnookums in heaven, right? If that's your heart, you probably have a pretty good marriage. But when you hear a quote from Jesus that says, don't worry about marriage, it's not in heaven, and underneath your breath, you just went, yes, yes, fresh start, second chance. The last thing I want to do is live with you for 60 years and then get to heaven, and there you are. <laughs> like, oh my God, where's hell, right? Right, so... If that's, your, if that's your attitude, you probably need to work on your marriage. So, so the Bible is the Bible's inspired. It's also inerrant in the sense that it needs to be properly interpreted within the genre it's written in. The original intent of the original author to the original audience within the original genre, pretty, pretty important, right? But it's also complex. So when you're reading the Bible, you can't just put it into one box. If it's in here, God approved of it. Not necessarily. Sometimes it's just telling you what happened. Well, if it's in here, this, you got to consider all of these things. Now, I've traveled the world, and, um, and I've been asked to do these uh, um, Q&As all over the world for people under 30 around this topic. It's going very, very, very well. In the whole world, I've probably answered well into the thousands of questions, and they're all about the same. Um, and and I, I, I could tell you that every objection to Scripture by the younger generation, to me, can fit into three categories. So far, they can fit into three categories. Next slide. So here are the three categories, if I remember, yep, all right. So here are the three categories. The first one is static appropriation. I'm going to go through and explain these here in a second. The second is genre confusion. By far, that's the biggest one. And the third one is lack of consideration of historical arc. So let me go through and explain all three of those. Static appropriation is... God wrote it, God doesn't change, therefore it shouldn't change, and we should still be living like that. And that's okay as long as it's love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have to do unto you. It's not okay when it's, it's okay to be the slave for laziness. Right? You, gotta, you can't do that to the Bible. The only group on earth that does that to the Bible is ISIS. The reason ISIS is so distasteful to you is because they believe God wrote it and it doesn't change. Like if you ask the leader of ISIS, why are you okay forcing young girls to marry your warriors? He will not say the Quran. He'll say Deuteronomy 21. Okay? So we, we know that we should not. And even the most, even good-hearted people, when they try to statically appropriate the Bible, when you look at their life, they're not living that way. Like someone who says, God wrote it. He doesn't change. I'm going to live like that. Okay, but you've shaved the side of your face today. And you're not wearing a head covering in church. And you're wearing a shirt made of mixed cloth. And I don't see tassels on the corners of your garments. And, and, and we're in New Zealand, and so I brought a doctor, and we have a small surgical procedure with a small guillotine back there that we have for you if you really want to live like that. See, even people who think they believe that, they would never live like that. Static appropriation destroys the Bible, all right? The second one is genre confusion. Genre confusion is a failure to consider the genre of the original author. So it would be like reading a poem as if it's a history book or reading a poem as if it's a science book or reading a history book as if it's something that God approves of, like a law. Or reading wisdom sayings as hard and fast, unbreakable things. Or reading apocalyptic literature literally. 
things like this. I'll give you an example of that, okay? This only happened three weeks ago. And I want to be clear about this. This person was good-hearted and genuinely grieved. It was a Q&A, and it was an older guy who snuck into a Q&A that was meant for people under 30. And here's what he said. And he was not taking me on. He was genuinely concerned. He said, Shane, I'm so grieved and concerned. Can you please help me? I said, I'll try. He said, I'm grieved and concerned because the Bible is absolutely not true. And I've put my faith in that. And now my faith is shaken. And I said, tell me why you think the Bible's not true. He said, well, in the book of Revelation... It says that at the end, the blood will flow to the horse's neck. I said, yes, it does. He goes, well, think about it, Shane. No nation uses horses for warfare anymore. That's just ridiculous. There's no way that's true. And I was flabbergasted, but I wanted to honor his heart. with, And I didn't want to embarrass him. But my, I was trying to keep my jaw from dropping from the... From the ridiculousness of that question. And so I just said to him, I said, Sir, I think you've confused two words, literal and true. Just because it's true doesn't mean it has to be read literally. And just because something's metaphoric and symbolic doesn't mean that it's not true. That sometimes the best truths are, are best uh, communicated in metaphorical language. He goes, Right. So are you saying it's not meant to be taken literal? I said, Blood flowing to horses' necks? I'm positive it's not meant to be taken literal. Because later in the same chapter, it says that there's a great whore coming down from the sky on a horse. Is that literal? He said, God, I hope not. <clears throat> I said, me too. That'd be terrifying. You imagine that, a whore on a horse? Because let's be honest, nothing's scarier than a whore on a horse. Imagine that. <sighs> right? Right. These are, you can't read apocalyptic literature as literal and expect to be right about it. That's genre confusion. So, so you got to consider, there's lots of genres in the Bible. Uh, there's law. There's references to other tribal poetry. There's ancient history. And I'll be clear about that. There is no modern history in the Bible. When ancient history was written, it played by different rules. Meaning, not detail, was the most important thing. And so the Bible's full of ancient history. It's full of prophetic literature. Um, things, and the prophetic literature uses different literary devices than other literature. It's got poems in it, parables. It's got, uh, it's got gospels, which are really, really first century biographies of somebody they were trying to make a king. Um, it's, it's got letters that were addressed to certain people at certain moments. Like, like anything that's in Paul's letters to everybody, it's pretty, pretty important. But anytime he's addressing one thing one place and he never says it anywhere else, it could tell you that it was a problem in Corinth but not in Galatia, Right? And so you've got to consider all of these things. When, when we're, so when we talk about genre confusion, we're talking about a lot of different things. I'm going to give you a specific example about that here in a second. And then the other one is lack of understanding of historical arc. So static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of consideration of historical arc. Now let me explain what I mean by historical arc, okay? This graph will serve as a great understanding of this, all right? 
So if the y-axis, uh, it represents our understanding about God. And the x-axis represents time. What you find in scripture is that there was a time where people walked with God. And then there was a massive falling away. And then what you find is God is determined to restore that. But that this happens gradually. So, so what you find in the Bible is not a static record of God. What you find is a dynamic progressive revelation of what people thought God was that was such a giant leap towards the final revelation of God in the risen Christ that God gave it life by breathing on it. And that's called inspiration. So, so here's what I mean by that. Let's say Abraham lived here really early in the story. And let's say Moses lived here. And let's say David lived here. And let's say one of the Old Testament prophets, Micah, lived here. I am not tricking you. Whose understanding of God was more complete? Abraham or Moses? Yeah, it's not hard. I'll do it this way. Whose understanding of God was more complete, Abraham or Moses? Yeah, 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 right? So, so Abraham lived here. And then whose understanding of God was more complete, Moses or David? By far. And then, and, then, and then David or Micah? Micah, for sure. And then whose understanding of God was more complete? Abraham, Moses, Davis, Micah combined or the risen Christ? Right? The risen, Jesus, the risen. The final word of God is not the Bible. The final word of God is the risen Christ. It's a person. Like in Hebrews 4 when it says the word of God is living and active, sharpening a two-edged sword. That is not talking about the Bible. Let's talk about a person. The next line says, it is to him that we must all give account. And it is to him that knows the motives of man's hearts. It's a person. Let me explain what I mean. Abraham lived here early. He gets this idea. And his idea was, let's kill animals instead of children. Okay. Let me, let me, you, you, your, your response was a little underwhelming there. Abraham says, let's kill animals instead of kids. That was the revelation he got from God. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? That's a flippin' good idea. Let's kill animals instead of children. Because in Abraham's world, they killed kids. If you want a great read on this, you can read the history book, The Gifts of the Jews by Thomas Cahill. He talks about how revolutionary Abraham was to end child sacrificing and move it to animal sacrificing in his world. Brilliant. So as an award-winning historian, Thomas Cahill. Um, well, when you're the first person to get an idea to kill animals instead of children, that's a pretty good move, right? Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that inspired? Yes, it is. Is that the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. But that's a giant leap in the right direction. Now, Moses comes along later and he says, let's limit animal sacrificing. Abraham says, no more kids, let's kill animals. Moses says, let's prescribe specific animal sacrifices to limit it. Now, is that a good move or a bad move? Really good move. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that inspired? You better believe it. Is it the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. And, and, then, and then, of course, David comes along and moves God into a temple. And then Micah comes along and says, let's not sacrifice at all. Let's just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. 
Is that a good move or a bad move? Good move. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that inspired? You better believe it. Is it the final word of God? No. Final word of God's the risen Christ. And then Jesus comes along and says, let's not sacrifice at all. Let's just do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time and be done with it. Good move or bad move? Great move. Inspired word of God, you better believe it. Final word of God, yes, the final word of God is the risen Christ. It's a person. So what you see in the Old Testament is not a static record of what God is. What you see is dynamic revelatory movement from here to here to here to here to here that was one step better than the day before, but it was leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. The trajectory of the scripture is always going that way, which is what Google does, and it's not Google's fault. Google's just the search engine. What people on Google do is they give you a plotted point, just like I talked about this morning, and they go, Oh, check this verse. Check this verse. That verse right there, that verse is insane. God wrote it and God doesn't change. That's insane. But they don't tell you that that scripture, the reason it sounds insane is because we're living here looking back on that, but that compared to the day before, that was one step better in the right direction moving forward, that God gave that life because it needed life because it was going somewhere better. It was moving forward. The Bible is awesome. So there, there's, this, there's this historical arc. I love the way Thomas Cahill says it. He says that in the scriptures, what you find is massive moves of consciousness leading to a world ready to embrace the risen Christ, sometimes in giant leaps and other times in little blips. I love that. I love that. And the fact that I can remember that is the reason I'm a nerd. Um, so, so if these are the three problems, then here are the three solutions. Next slide. That the Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The Bible here is pointing there. Otherwise, why don't we still kill animals? The Bible clearly says to. Why aren't we here on Saturday? The Bible clearly says to. Why'd you eat bacon today? The Bible says don't. You guys, why aren't you circumcised? The Bible says you should be. We, we know that the Bible's not static. It's something here was moving something better there. It's moving to Jesus. Next slide, two. The Bible was written by 40 different people over approximately 1,000 years in different eras and genres. What the original author intended to communicate to the original audience should be heavily considered when interpreting scripture. Next. We have to always consider historical arc before we draw conclusions about the scripture in question. Historical arc is two areas. One, is there a history underneath the story that makes the story make more sense because the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum? And two, where does the story fit on this arc? Is it early? Is it later? How was it moving things this way? That's what I mean by historical arc. And there's so many historical arc examples. Like, like, like are, are you guys bored? Oh, okay, good. Okay, ne next slide. All right. So there's Deuteronomy 21, which we'll talk about in a second. It says something kind of crazy if you look at it. Next, you got the unknown God. This is where Paul shows up at Athens, and he, and he, he says there's lots of gods. So he finds a God that doesn't have a name, and he says, let's just call him Jesus and be done with it. 
What's going on there? There's a story underneath that. Next slide. And then there's the pool of Bethesda, which I'm pretty sure I've talked about here before. And like what kind of insane God creates a race amongst afflicted people? That, that, that's kind of nuts. Um, and then there's dirty sponges, which I meant to talk about last night, but I ran out of time. And why were they lifting some sort of spongy thing to Jesus's face? And why was that considered cruel? And what, what was going on there? And how does, it, how does understanding first century Roman hygiene help us understand that? And what about whitewashed tombs? And what did Jesus mean when he said that? And next slide. And what about the gates of hell? And where was Jesus? Jesus standing when he said the gates of hell will not prevail. And how does that help us understand what he was talking about? And next slide. And what about stones crying out? That's weird. Like, ah, what's going on there? And what about writing in the dirt? Why would Jesus write in the dirt? Could he not just speak? And what about, why would you ever chop off a man's ear? <laughs> Talked about that last night. And what about let the dead bury the dead? And how insensitive can you be? Like the guy says, can I follow you? And Jesus says, sure. He goes, but my dad died. I need to bury him. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury the dead. How awful is that? There must be something we're missing there. And there is. And it's found in history. And what about sounding the trumpets? What's that talking about? And next slide. And what, why did the blind man start stripping? That's weird. It says that Jesus came across a blind man and his first response was to start taking off his clothes. Have you ever had somebody just a little too excited to see you? That's weird, right? And, and why 30 pieces of silver? Why not a big bag of silver? Why not a small bag of silver? Why not a bunch of silver? No, nope, 30 pieces. And how does understanding Levitical law help us understand what was going on there? And next, and what, what about folded face cloths and tombs? <clears throat> Why does it say the grave clothes were piled down, but the face clothes was, was folded neatly to the side? Why is it making a point of that? What does that tell us? And, and what about Ananias and Sapphira? And why are people still dying in the New Testament? What's going on there? And what about the blessed side night woman? And why is it so radical for Jesus to bless a side night? Why are they willing to throw him off a cliff because he did it? And why is he addressing her as a dog? What's going on there? And, and, and what about the creation account? And how do we explain the fact that the creation account was actually found in ancient Babylonian scriptures as well, the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Atherhesis, and the Epic of Gilgamesh? And what does that tell us about how Genesis 1 is more beautiful than you thought, not less beautiful? And why do the Gospels tell contradictory stories? Like, 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 why does Matthew say that Jesus cursed the fig tree and then after that went in and turned the tables over, but Mark says he turned the tables over and then after that went out and cursed the fig tree? If God wrote it, he got very confused. What's going on there? And, and why do the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles differ so much when speaking of the same event? The, the historical arc will tell you that, actually. Understanding that Chronicles was written 350 years after the fact with hindsight helps us understand that. Next slide. And why all the contradictory commands? And, and next one, and can God not just make up his mind? What does he want us to do? Kill animals, not kill animals? Just say, for goodness sake. And what about turn the other cheek? And what about go the extra mile? And, next, and what about heaven? When Jesus said heaven, what did the first century people think? Not what we think. It wasn't, they didn't have Renaissance art. <laughs> to base all their images on. What, what, what about, and what about hell? Like when Jesus said Gehenna, what were they thinking? When he said Hades, what were they thinking? When Peter later said Tartaro, what were they thinking? And how does the fact that there was three hells, not one, differ in how we should be interpreting these things? Next slide. And what about rubbish dumps? And, and next slide. And what about white robes and gold crowns? How weird is that? In Revelation it says that in heaven we'll be given white robes and gold crowns. And I remember my Sunday school teacher telling me, I was seven. She said, hey guys, guess what? One day 
when you go to heaven, you're going to get a white robe and a gold crown, and you're going to get to go to church all day. And I remember being seven going, oh, no. Where's hell? And how does understanding the first century reign of Domitian help us understand what white robes and gold crowns were doing? It also helps us understand the mark of the beast. It would also help us understand the four horse horse race. And what does that do? I mean, there's so much in that. Next slide. And what about rending the garments? What's going on there? Next slide. And what about casting aside garments? What's happening there? Next one. And what about binding and loosing? What was Jesus talking about? And, and next slide. And what about let the dead bury the dead? That was so bad I put that in there twice. And what about good eyes and bad eyes? What was he talking about? And what about yokes? What's a yoke? What's going on there? And what about shaking the dust off your feet? And how can a guy who said to bless your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you and who commands us to forgive everybody at night, how could he ever say, well, just shake the dust off your feet? What's he talking about unless it's something else? What about clean and unclean? And next one, what about tassels on garments? Is that a great fashion statement or what? And most importantly, what did Moses see when he saw God's backside? The Bible is not simple. It's complex. And I can tell you the answer to all those things is in history books. And so I want to give you a couple of specific examples of how important this stuff is. Um, let's start with asking this question. Next slide. <clears throat> What's the deal with Job? So I get asked to do all these Q&As. And all I do is check Google, and I've never had a question asked yet that wasn't in there. Until last year, somebody threw me a curveball that I did not see coming. And it just happened to be in the biggest Q&A I did all year. 1,600 people showed up. Two mics. Come bring your problems with Scripture, ask that guy. What could go wrong? And this lovely young girl, lovely, 20 years old probably, came up and she said, Pastor Shane, thank you for being here. She was so respectful and so honoring. She said, I grew up an atheist. Both my parents are atheists. Um, she said, I'm not an atheist. Um, I cannot come to a place where I think all of this is held together by accident. Um, so, but I'm not a Christian. So I've journeyed from atheism to not atheism to I'm seeking what God might be like, right? And I just wanted to cheer her. Like, how good is that move, right? And how brave is a girl to come up to the front in a room of most people who would certainly not see things her way and be brave enough to ask a genuine, authentic question. I was proud of her, hey. She said, so I, I'm not a Christian and I have some very clear problems with Christianity and I'm wondering if you can help me. And I said, I'll try. And I'm going through Google, you know. And she said, I count, this was someone that did her homework. She said, I count over 80 promises in the Bible that God will protect us from our enemies. I said, yes. She said, but then there's an entire book dedicated to God allowing Satan to kill a man's entire family. So here's my question. Is God allowed to lie? Or is God random? 
And if he's allowed to lie, then we know he can't be trusted. And if he's allowed to be random, that is the definition of untrustworthy. My question is, is why is your faith and trust in a God that has proven himself in writing to be random and he doesn't keep his word? Could you please help me with that? The whole room. So I said to her, I said, first of all, I'm so proud of you for asking that question. I said, second, um, I want to make sure we're referencing the same book. Are you talking about Job? She said, yes, 80 promises. I'll protect you from your enemy. And then an entire book, 46 chapters or something, dedicated to God letting Satan destroy a man's entire life. How could you trust somebody like that? Now, what's the problem with her question? No, first, is it a good question? Should she be allowed to ask that? Yes, and we better have a good answer. But her, her question is based on something fallacious. The problem with her question is that is genre confusion. So I asked her, I said, is Job a history book? She said, I don't know. I haven't thought of that. And I said, that's okay. I said, you've done your homework. Was there a history section in the Old Testament? She said, yes. I said, what books were in those? She said, uh, uh, I said, let me start you off. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. She goes, yes. I said, so when the people who put the Bible together in the Old Testament, when they looked at Job, what section did they put Job in? She said, the poetry section. I said, right. What does that tell you? She put her hands on her head and she went, it's a poem. I said, yes, Job's a poem. Of course, Job's a poem. How do we know Job's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section. To read Job as literal history is as absurd as reading the Song of Solomon as literal history. Was her nose really like a tower? Were her legs actually like cedar trees? <laughs> Were her breasts really as big as the hills of Bashan? <laughs> no! <clears throat> poem. How do we know Job's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section. Here's the historical arc on Job. There was a real guy, a literal man named Job who lost everything. He's honored in Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, and in Muslim tradition, actually. Um, the book of Job was a poem or a play written by children of Israel enslaved in Babylon. Now, if you were an Israelite who was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, what have you lost? Wives, children, homes, jobs, prestige, title. You lost everything. They identified with Job and they wrote a poem around Job's life to try to explain the suffering. And the point of the whole book of Job is you cannot intellectualize suffering. To intellectualize suffering cheapens the experience of suffering itself. Suffering is not something to be figured out. Suffering is something you have to go through. But if you could keep your faith in the one who is faithful, he will restore all things back to you. But the reason it's happening is none of your business. But if you could keep your eyes and your trust on the one who's trustworthy, all things will be restored back to you. That's the point of the play. And that's beautiful. 
and awesome. She says to me, I've asked so many people that question. That was by far the best answer. I'm going to keep journeying. I'm going to keep going in my journey. And I was like, you keep going. You got any more questions while you're standing there? Because that was awesome. That was awesome. But that's a good example of genre confusion. You got to consider genre. Here's what got me going on this is um, I've got two more examples. Um, I I, I realize I've already been talking for an hour. Um, Is everybody okay? Okay, as long as you're not bored. I just don't want you to be bored. Okay, so, um, and I realize an hour is a long time for butts, but, but there's two more examples. And this, is what, this is what got me going on this. Uh, this was probably five years ago now. I was in Auckland, and a young lady in front of people, um, she came up and she said, Shane, I need your help. I love Jesus. I want you to know I love Jesus. I grew up in the church. She said, but I, I don't think I want to go to heaven when I die. And I said, that's okay. You don't have to go to heaven if you don't want. And she said, um, she said, she said, can you please help me? She had a Bible. She said, this is God's word, right? And I said, yes. She said, God wrote it, right? I said, go on. Because that wasn't my topic that night. And she said, and God doesn't change, right? I said, no, God doesn't change. She said, could you please help me? Because there's this passage that makes God appear like somebody I wouldn't want to spend eternity with. Um, It has to do with his attitude towards women. And she pulled her Bible out and she read this word for word out of the NIV. Um, I copied and pasted it. This is Deuteronomy 21. Um, I'm going to read this in a southern accent because it makes it better. You guys just excuse me a second. This is straight out of Deuteronomy 21. Now let's get this straight. Does Shane Willard think this is inspired? Yes. Do you believe this is inspired? Yes. Okay. Here we go. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice amongst the captives a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you could take her to you as your wife. Bring her to your home. Have her shave her head. Clip her nails. Keep going. And put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. After she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother, who you killed, for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she'll be your wife. That means have sex. If you are not pleased with her, in other words, if she's not good in bed, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you've already dishonored her. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Preach it, preacher. Shave those heads. Clip those nails. Make young virgin girls marry warriors they don't love. Because our God is love. She said, can you please help me? She said, why would you ever want to spend eternity with a God who ever treated women like that? Now, first, is that a good question or not so good question? That's a pretty good question. Should she be allowed to ask that? Yeah. So I asked her, I said, I said, what did you do when you learned that? She said, I went and asked my parents. I said, what did they say? She said, they said they'd never seen that before. I said, then what did you do? She said, we went to our pastor. And I said, what did he say? She said, he said, well, God's ways aren't our ways. Who are we 
not helpful. But before we judge him, what would you have said? Right? So let's walk through this slowly. Okay? Because I want you to have the tools. This is just one example, but if I give you the tools, you can, right? Couple things. What genre is this? It's national law. That's first. Second, who wrote this? Moses. Did God write Deuteronomy 21? No. Moses wrote Deuteronomy 21. Did God breathe life into it? Yes, he did. That's called what? Inspiration. All right. So Moses wrote it. So the question is, is God like this? So let's ask the questions, right? Is God for forcing 13-year-old virgins to marry warriors? You're pretty certain, right? Even though it's written in the Bible. Okay, good. All right. So am I. I'm certain God is not for that. Why am I certain? Because the risen Christ would not be for that. And the spirit of the risen Christ is in me, and I sort of know I'm fairly certain God's not for that. Right? And so are you. Right? So here's the question. If God's not for that, then why was Moses for it? That's the question. And the bigger question is, is why would God breathe life into something like that? And the answer is historical arc. Where did Moses live on this timeline? Here. So this is very early in the story. The question isn't, is God like that? Or is God for that? The question is, is why on earth would God breathe life into something that sounds insane? Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Only you ladies can answer this. If Wellington, is that where the capital of New Zealand is? Is that where they make decisions? Okay. If, if the capital people, the legislature, the parliament in Wellington said, you know what? We're getting back to the Bible. And as of tomorrow, that is now the national law of New Zealand. Would the world be a better place or a worse place for women in New Zealand? Worse, way worse. So sometimes getting back to the Bible is the wrong direction. It was political season in America, and I saw a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker said, Vote the Bible. Vote the Bible? Which part? The love your neighbor as yourself part? Okay. And I think I know what you even mean by that, but be more specific. Because that, that, what was, that's in there. So, but that's not how you read the Bible. You read the Bible and ask this question. Is what Moses thought there, was it making the world better or worse compared to the day before? And the answer is quantum leap better. According to, I think it was Karen Armstrong, she said that this, this scripture is the most giant leap forward for women's rights ever recorded in the history of the world up to the time it was written. That Deuteronomy 21 was the most giant leap forward in the history of the world. Why? Because Moses was the first person ever to write a national law that called women people, not property. That protected them from being bought and sold as slaves. In Persian, Greek, and Egyptian law, all women were property. They were used as bartering tools to buy protection and food and weaponry. It was a terrible thing. Moses said, no, 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 no. In our new world, if you want to take a foreign woman, you have to make her your wife with the same rights and privileges that 
the rest of your wives have. You have to let her shave her head and clip her nails. By the way, that was a good thing because the context was mourning. And in ancient Jewish mourning, they shaved their heads and clipped their nails. Essentially, even if they're a foreigner, if you've taken them into your house, you've got to let them mourn like a Jew, act like a Jew, be like a Jew. You, they are now a part of your house. And if you're displeased with her, you have to let her go free. You can never buy and sell her as a slave because in Israel, women are people, not property. Now, when you're the first person to write a law that says women are people, not property, is that a good move or a bad move? Is that a good move or a bad move? Is that a word from God? You better believe it. Is that inspired? Absolutely. Is that the final word of God on the subject? No, but it was a gigantic leap in the right direction. So that was my answer to her. That was my answer to that girl. And I waited. And it took a second. But the whole room gave me a standing clap. Which compared to that, your response was quite underwhelming. <laughs> but but I, I didn't care about the standing clap so much as I thought in that moment that God used me to save these people's faith. Not faith in Jesus. Faith in, faith, Jesus isn't on trial. I'm talking about faith in Scripture. Faith in why God would breathe life into something that sounds insane. Um... I, I, and I went back to my room that night and I was grieved because what would have happened if somebody couldn't answer that for that girl? And she's not my daughter, but she's somebody's daughter. And I was grieved and I, I was sort of irritated at God. I said, I said, God, somebody's got to answer these questions. Somebody, somebody's got to have better answers. And then I just felt like God said, well, you didn't do bad. And that was probably five years ago, and, and, and since that moment, I've been writing talks like this because I want to make the Bible beautiful for your children because it's awesome. The, the Bible is an accurate record of people going, wait a minute, there's a better way to treat women. Oh, and then another better way, and then another better way. But if you, if you treat it statically, it's horrendous. <laughs> she said, can I ask you one more? And she asked me about stoning children, you know. And so we talked about that. Then later, it was in another Q&A, somebody, this was an agnostic person um, who said, Shane, can you help me understand why you would serve a God who's okay bashing infants' heads against stones? Hit number three on Google horrible Bible verses search. <laughs> so I was expecting it. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, Psalm 137 says that God will bless people who bash his children's heads against stones. And you know what? It does. <laughs> oh, daughter Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. They said, why are you okay with a God that was okay with bashing children's heads against rocks? First, is that a good question? Should they be allowed to ask that? Yes. What's the fallacy in the question? Of the three, it's genre confusion. They're reading a poem as if it's God laying down a law. Psalm 137 is a poem. You've got you to interpret it as the poem genre. Who wrote Psalm 137? Not God. Who wrote it? Trick question. You don't know. Nobody knows. 
It's an anonymous person. All we know about that person is that they were a priest. And they were a priest at the time Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem and took them captive. That's all we know. Which means that's not all we know. Here's what we know from history. That when Nebuchadnezzar took over a place, if you were under the age of eight, he instructed his men to grab you by the feet, find a rock, and bash your head in against the rock. It was to invoke fear. It was called terrorism. If you were over the age of, if you're under the age of eight, you got your head bashed in. If you were, un, if you were over the age of 30, you got killed because you were useless. If you were between the ages of 8 and 30 and you were a female, you are now a sex slave for a Babylonian platoon. You would have been gang raped to death. If you're between the ages of 8 and 30 and you were a male priest, they didn't want they wanted you to be able to serve in the temple of Ishtar as a slave, but they didn't want you to be able to procreate. So what they did is they held you down and they took two bricks and they crushed your testicles between them. So think about, if you're this guy, what did you lose on the day Nebuchadnezzar came to town? Everything. I don't want to overstate it nor understate it. You would have watched your children's heads being bashed against stones. You would have seen your wife gang raped to death. Anybody in your family over the age of 30, you would have seen them slaughtered. You would have lost your land, your home, your job. In 2 Kings 25, it says that Nebuchadnezzar himself went into the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture, and didn't die. That would have shook your faith. Why? Because the Bible says if you walk into the Holy of Holies, what's going to happen to you? You die. Nebuchadnezzar walked in there and didn't die. Now think about this. If you're a priest and you're in the testicle crushing line... Number 16, number 16, number 16, you're like number 37, you're like, shoot. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes around and says, has anybody got the furniture out of there? And the soldier says, we left that for you, boss. And he says, I'm going in there. I'm going all the way in there. I'm going to take the most valuable things. If you're the priest, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's what you need to do, bro. All the way in there. Big scary curtain. Just go all the way in. Don't worry about it. Why? Have you ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Heads come off. You can't wait for Nebuchadnezzar to walk in there because God will liberate you. And then he doesn't. And your testicles get crushed. And you get walked to Babylon to be a slave in the temple of Ishtar with the rest of the priests. So what did you lose in a day? Everything. Homes, families, jobs, position, your faith gets shaken a little bit or a lot. Like, where, did God abandon us here? And he actually, in Psalm 137, he calls God out. He's like, where were you when this was going on? And then he goes, but whatever, wherever you were, I'm going to choose to trust you anyway. I'm sure you had your reasons. Right? So he's feeling like we would feel. He lost everything. And what do you do when you've lost your job, your family, your home, your wife's been gang raped to death, your children's heads have been bashed against stones, and you've lost your testicles? What, what do you do? Well, evidently you write a poem. This is an accurate, inspired journal entry from a broken man writing a song to God in his grief. And at the end of the song, he says... The verse right before this says, they watched as they bashed our children's heads against stones. 
may you bless the person who bashes their children's heads against stones. This isn't a static record of what God is. This is an accurate, inspired journal entry of what we would all hope God would be had somebody bashed our head against a stone or our children's head against a stone. He's essentially saying, God, I'm leaving vengeance in the hands of you. I am taking my anger and my vengeance and I'm leaving it at the throne of the one whose throne is justice and righteousness. And I'm trusting you not to just be there with me, but to get it back right. This is Psalm 137. This is the lesson about what to do with anger and hate and trusting God with injustice. This isn't a story about God blessing people who bash babies. This is a story about what we would all hope God would do if someone bashed our baby. But you've got to consider genre and you've got to consider history before you interpret it. So I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to be in love with the scripture. Love it. It's an endless exploration. I hope Jesus got bigger tonight. I hope the cross works better. I hope the resurrection is central. I hope you love the Bible more now than you ever have in your whole life because the Bible is awesome. Until I see you next year, grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Amen. Praise the Lord. How many enjoyed that? Challenged by that. It's something you re we really need to hear. I heard Shane do this message at a pastor's conference, and uh, I specifically requested it, particularly because of people going through the school. You really do need to have answers to these questions because we've got a generation rising up that can Google and, and, and they check everything out and then check what you're saying or what you think. They can ask you the questions. So we do need to change our game and become equipped so we can have a better understanding ourselves. How many, when you read those scriptures, you've thought, Ooh, I actually thought that. <laughs> well, there's lots of things we were taught wrong. And uh, so we, we need to keep growing in our knowledge and revelation, not only of what Scripture says, but how to actually approach it and read it and get into it properly. So what you've heard, I would consider one of the most valuable messages you could get to help reorient the thinking about the Bible. And uh, Shane has referred to uh, a book there tonight, and uh, there's other books too um, that are very helpful. I encourage you to become a student, not just of the Bible, but also to get some of the materials that, or books that help understand the culture of the Bible. Um, when I had my season, when I was uh, recuperating from heart difficulty, I made a decision I'd do some reading different to what I normally would read. And uh, I think the first book I started with was Misinterpreting the Bible Through Western Cultural Eyes. In other words, the way Westerners observe the Bible is from the perspective of our culture and we miss major themes of the Bible, which when you see them are evident everywhere. I just wept at how little I had seen and to see like a major theme from one end of the Bible to the other and I had never seen it before. It just broke my heart really that why has no one shared that with me? Why am I only finding that out now? And uh, it got me studying then about the culture of the Bible. And uh, I did many, read about eight, nine books or something. And I'm still into it now. I'm finding it so revolutionary. And when I look at it, I see it differently. And what Shane shared tonight is really uh, a very, very powerful message. I, and uh, 
it's like even though an hour went by, it went by real quick. And it's kind of like an hour and a half. But I just, how many were wanting, oh, I want more of that. It was so good, I wanted more. And what about all those things he raised that he never answered them? I'm thinking, what? what? Can we come with all those things? I listed them all. Why? What? I, I, I need an answer. You, you, now you raised it. I need the answers to that. So he gave uh, uh, some last night and some on Friday. And uh, then there's other things as well. It just makes the Bible such a fascinating book. And you think, wow, instead of being stumped, you say, oh, there was an answer. It was so obvious. But we didn't see it. So I really encourage you. We want to sow into, uh, into Shane tonight too. He uh, asks for nothing, comes for nothing. But we sow into his ministry so he can go to places that can't have him. So I encourage you tonight to think how you could sow. Uh, there are two ways of sowing into his ministry. One, you buy resources. All of the money from resources is kept separate and goes to supporting his missions work, supporting orphanages and so on. But all we give to him in offering, uh, that supports him and enables him to live and to do things, go places and, uh, and so on. So let's uh, give and give generously. Give as your purpose in your heart, the Bible says. You have been blessed, then it's so. He lives uh, by the ministry of the word and so uh, we're to honor those who live that way and bless them so uh, I found that in your, in your journey of giving uh, what I have uh, sought to do is be on a journey where the arc of generosity is growing okay? and so Joy and I inevitably when we give we'll always ask and agree together on the same amount the one who got the lesser amount needs to grow in generosity it's rare we get it differently. We get it the same every time we pray and think about it. And uh, what I have found over years is my st- what I would standardly give is just growing and growing and growing and growing. So in other words, you learn to become a generous person because we're so blessed. So whatever's within your power, let's decide to bless. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this revelation so helpful to us. Father, we thank you for Shane. Father, we bless Shane. We bless his ministry. We pray for his health to be sound and strong. We pray for safety wherever he goes. We pray for open doors to influential places, that he will be a voice in this generation, restoring confidence in the Bible where the Western world is shaking and contending against it. Father, we pray that the revelation shared today will not just be static, but will grow and progress in our lives, that we will become hungry to learn and grow. We will apply ourselves to learning new things. And Father, today, we thank you for a release of generosity to shame. As we give tonight, we choose to be generous, to bless him, and uh, to thank you for your servant. Father, we pray rich blessing as he goes into other parts of New Zealand, to Pastors Conference next week, into Invercargill and so on. Father, we pray blessing and impact everywhere in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So we've got some uh, people going to take up uh, some bags or something organized.